Father, thanks for being a God who loves us and pursues us, is kind to us, but also who is honest with us. God, that you pursue us to change our behavior to match our identity as your children if we've surrendered to you. Would you help us see that this morning through your text? Spirit, would you convict us and would you comfort us in the areas we need to adjust, we need to change? Would we know who we are in you and would our life reflect that? Would you give us eyes to see it this morning? Spirit, ears to hear it and lives and hearts to be soft and transformed to the likeness of your son. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Uh, what? Why, why do we pretend? And I don't mean like make-believe with, with little ones, but like, why do, we, why do we pretend? We just sang a whole song just a second ago about how we've made life a talent show. I don't know about you, but I find myself kind of gravitating towards this. I was in a conversation this last week with somebody new that I didn't really know. They didn't really know me. And they made an assumption and they made a comment about me, and I didn't correct it because it kind of felt good, the assumption. It was an incorrect assumption, but it kind of boosted uh, who I thought I was in the moment. Do you ever find yourself doing this? You kind of pad your stats, you kind of um, name drop in certain conversations. You maybe think, oh, it's, it's a little bit better, and you're the only one that knows. When I have conversations, when people find out that I'm a pastor, and usually one of the questions they have if they're a Christian is one of the first things, well, how many people come to your church? Because there's some type of value connected to uh, large equals legitimate. And I, I, I naturally, with my sinful heart, want to gravitate to making the number as high as it actually could be. Or maybe this is how many people we had on Easter. Which is, like, why, why, why do I do that? That's not correct. That's not accurate. Why do we pretend like this in our conversations, especially with people we might not know very well? I don't know if I'm the only one that does this, but it seems like we have a, a, a heart that kind of gravitates to looking better than we actually are. I think some of the reason that we do that is because, at least for me, like even in that moment this week, there's like this illusion of kind of safety or control or making myself seem better than I actually am. Because if I make myself seem better, then you're more apt to kind of like me or accept me or fill in the blank. Uh, I have uh, these friends that we have done life with for a long time, over 20 years. We've been journeying and trying to follow Jesus together at some levels. They all live in different states, and we've continued to stay in contact and relationship with one another to help each other in that pursuit of Jesus. We all have teenage kids now, but about five years ago, we were about to move into that next level of parenting. And one of my buddies was sitting down, and we were on a phone call, and he was telling us the stories. We're trying to figure out this thing together, and he's telling us about his oldest son. He's like, oh, man. And we're like, what happened? And he goes, well, my oldest son, he got birthday money. He's been saving his money. And we said, hey, you can do what you want with his money. And we realized what he did is he bought AirPods with his money. Now, AirPods had just came out. You guys know this, right? The, the wireless deal, you listen to your phone. And so his son buys these AirPods, and we're like, I don't... Why does that bother you? What's like, is it because it's a stewardship thing? He spent all his money on it. And like, what, what's the big problem? Because this, his son at the time was in junior high. And we're like, I don't understand what the big deal is. And he goes, no, 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 you, you, you don't get it. It's not a stewardship thing. He doesn't have a phone. <laughs> we haven't let him have a phone yet. 
And so he has these things in junior high and he puts them in because this looks cool, because like, it's like a status thing. He's not listening to anything and he's walking out to the, to the, to the thing, you know, like, like he's, he's pretending. And it was deeply concerning for his dad going like, this is, I'm worried about this, right? And some of us, if, if we really do a heart evaluation, um, Maybe we've made a decision for Jesus at some point in our life. We've prayed a prayer. We've walked an aisle. But um, we, our, our, our declaration for Jesus to surrender to him, to give our lives to him, to walk in the way he's walked, it, it doesn't really match up with our behavior. It doesn't really match up with the way we live. And so we're walking around with these AirPods in spiritually, but under the surface, like there's no connection. And this is exactly what John is dealing with, with some of the people in the midst of who he is writing to, the passage that we are in and the series that we're in. There were these false teachers that John's writing to specifically. And so if you're not familiar with the context, we've been walking it through. But um, there's this early church and, and there's this group of people that said, you know what? Like Jesus really wasn't human. He was just spirit. And so because of that, like, we don't actually have to obey Jesus with our bodies. He wasn't a real body. He's just a spirit. So you can be okay with God spiritually, but you can do whatever you want physically. And it was breaking up the church because a whole group had gone like, see, we don't need to adhere to that kind of teaching. We can do what we want. and We can still be okay with God. And John is going, that's not right. He's going, he was a human. I've seen him. I touched him. I walked with him. And what you do with your life actually matters. It actually matters. And this group, again, that was pulling people away from the community, from the church, they were living this kind of pretend, deceptive life. It wasn't incongruence because, I mean, wouldn't you like to be fine and right with God but do whatever you want? Right? You could, you could just gratify those sinful desires in you, and it, w- it wouldn't really matter. And John's going, that, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. It does matter what your behavior looks like. And Jesus, in his most famous sermon in Matthew 5, called the Sermon on the Mount, he gives these kind of rhythms for life, for kingdom living, like these practices of like, you've heard it said this way, but I'm actually telling you, this is what it means to be human, that you love the poor, that you weep with those who weep. And he gives this guideline in this grid for what it looks like to operate by loving God and loving people. And at the end, he talks very seriously about this idea of pretending or being deceived. He goes below the waterline. It can look this way on the surface, and it can sound kind of good, but underneath the surface, are you really connected? And in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus says, starting in verse 15 through 23. It should be up on the screen to follow along with you. He says this. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. 
Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. He goes on in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the same word that John uses in verse 4. That sin is lawlessness. This idea of not having boundaries, of doing whatever you want. And this way of pretending from Jesus' perspective and John's perspective is massively dangerous to our faith. And again, what John is doing is he's going to cut right through the fog of these false teachers and goes, no, it actually does matter. You can actually be assured of your relationship with Jesus, who is real, and it matters how you live. It's an indicator of your identity, the way you live and the way you practice your life. That's what he's going to go after. It's interesting to me, when you read the Bible or when you study the Bible, if you've been around it enough, you start to begin to see certain things that are popular in culture, these ideas, maybe it's movies, maybe it's books, and you go, well, they just got that from the Bible, even if they didn't know they got it from the Bible. And there was a very popular book that came out in 2018 called Atomic Habits by James Clear. I don't know if any of you have read Atomic Habits. It's a fantastic book, right? The whole point of it is if you're trying to set goals, and this idea is that um, how small adjustments can make massive transformation. It's a really good book. I would highly recommend it. But he uses a phrase in the book that I just, when I'm reading this passage we just covered, I go, that's exactly what John has been saying. Here's what he says, and this is kind of the main idea for this morning. It's the idea that habits shape your identity and your identity shapes your habits. Habits, what you do, your rhythms, your practices, that John's gonna use that language, practice, what you do all the time will actually shape who you believe to be. And Clear says, even in Atomic Habits, you cast a vote for who you wanna be based on those habits. That your habits shape your identity, who you believe that you are, and then your identity, who you believe you are, will actually shape your habits, your everyday rhythms of life. Let's see how John plays it out for us in chapter 3 here. Because again, habits are massively important for us. Have you ever paid attention to those subconscious practices that you have in your life? I don't know about you, but usually it takes somebody else to come in and go, why do you do that? And you go, I, I didn't even realize I did it. Right, this happened to me uh, with driving. When I first started driving, and several years after driving, every time I would turn onto my street, wherever I lived, in an apartment or a house, as soon as I would make that turn onto the street I lived on, I would unbuckle my seatbelt. And it wasn't until somebody riding with me was like, why, do you, why are you unbuckling your seatbelt? And I was like, I, uh, I, I don't know. I guess I do do that, right? And I realized after reflections, like, my dad always did that. We'd pull into our neighborhood and kind of our street, and he would unbuckle his seatbelt. And so well, I'd just unbuckle my seatbelt. It wasn't until somebody pointed out that habit, that rhythm, that practice that I go, oh, well, should I keep doing this? And then I had kids, and I was like, ah, oh, I need to stop doing this, right? Because then my kids were like, why are you unbuckling your seatbelt, Dad? They're unbuckling their car seat, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, okay, let's keep the seatbelt buckled. I realized I don't do that anymore, but for years of driving, I just did that. What are your habits, your subconscious rhythms and practices that you do, and do people point it out to you? 
maybe for a lot of us, I don't know if you've recognized this yet, but maybe you're in line and you're waiting. What do you do? I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's a habit. Maybe it's bad, right? But like, do you realize how often you pull out your phone when you start to get bored mentally? I mean, maybe some of you are doing it right now. It's very true. You're like, okay, I've heard enough of this thing. And you're just, okay, what's going on? Let me scroll right for a minute. Our habits affect us. They double down on the things we believe about ourselves, And oftentimes we don't even realize we're doing it. And it's shaping and reinforcing certain things we believe about who we are. Charles Dunhig says this in his book, The Power of Habit. He says, habits are powerful but delicate. They can emerge outside our subconscious and can be deliberately designed. They often occur without our permission but can be reshaped by fiddling with their parts. They shape our lives far more than we realize. They're so strong, in fact, that they cause our brains to cling to them at the exclusion of all else, including common sense. If we have regular habits or practices or rhythms in our life, do you know you also have spiritual practices or rhythms in your life? How do you assess those? Do you have people, do you have community in your life that goes like, okay, like how can you develop these practices, these rhythms, these habits toward understanding who you are if you're a Christian in Christ? It's massively important. And I just think we get lazy and we don't even realize how much we're being shaped and formed into who we are. So again, let's look back at the text and again, understand what John is trying to address to the original reader is that this group has, has pulled a bunch of people away from the church because they've been indifferent to sin. They're going, you can be right with God, but you could do whatever you want with your body. Your sin doesn't really matter because God is taking care of that. And John's going, that's actually not right. That's a form of pretending. Here's what he says. Verse 4. John, 1 John chapter 3, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. We just heard Jesus use this word, and even in the context that John is writing to, this idea of a Roman citizen would say, like, I have to obey the law of Rome. That was a big deal to obey the law of Rome. And John is going, actually, not only do you need to obey the law of Rome, but actually God's law supersedes that. It's a big deal, and if you continue to sin and behave however you want to behave, that's a problem. He continues in verse 5. He says, you know that he, talking about Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. He is righteous. Whoever practices or makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, in this context, we're using the language of habits, but he's using the language of practice, and we talked about this last week. The language of practice in the original language is just an ongoing, continual thing that you're doing. 
right? We sometimes think of practice as like preparing for something bigger, but, you know, practice. I mean, we're talking about practice, right? Practice, not a game, practice. Some of you guys get that. Anyway, um, sometimes we, we have this idea, like when we read practice, it's like preparing for something, but practice and game are, are, are like, the, the lines are blurred in our life. Sometimes, like we're always doing something, and so when he's using the word practice, I think a better word is like habits. Like what are you doing? What are your rhythms that you're continuing to do time and time again? And so again, what we're talking about is habits shape our identity, and our identity shapes our habits. So the habits he's talking about in the text, we just read it, um, he gives two examples. He gives the habit of sinning, continuing to sin, we're going to unpack that, and then the habit of righteousness. And both of those things will uh, double down and reinforce your identity, your identity as a child of the devil, he says. If you continue to make a habit and a pattern of sin, you're probably a child of the devil. Or if you make a habit or a practice of righteousness, it's an indicator that you're a child of God. Let's unpack how that plays out to us specifically. And the first thing we need to recognize when we read a passage like this, if you're, if you're like me, you're an Enneagram one, you've got that self-critic all the time in your head, and you go, well, like, I guess I'm a child of the devil. Because do I sin? Yeah, I, I continue to sin. Like, I'm, I'm not perfect. And even when he uses the word righteousness, it's not perfection, it's upright living. And so when I read this, I go, well, I, 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 there's plenty of sin in my life. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? But again, remember the context. What John is addressing specifically are these false teachers that have said, like, it doesn't matter how you live. And so if we understand the context of his writing, even in John chapter 1, verse 8, we know this. He goes, like, if you say you don't sin, what? You're deceiving yourself, and the truth isn't in us. He's not saying Christians are sinless. That's not the point of this passage. He continues on in chapter 2, verse 1, if you remember, he goes, but if you do sin, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who has paid for your sin. So he's not saying, like, you have to act sinless. He's saying, do you have a pattern of habitual sin that you don't even care about? That's a problem if you say you are with Jesus. And some of us, again, have been bought this version of Christianity in our culture in America that you just pray a prayer and you get out of hell and that's it and you can just do whatever you want. Your behavior doesn't matter. And John's saying that's, that's actually not following Jesus. That's a way of being deceived. That's a way of pretending. And so for us to go, okay, what are our habits? Because what he says in the text, again, if you make a habit of sinning, we unpacked the word sin a couple uh, of weeks ago in the context of this passage. If you remember, we looked at a Bible project video on the word sin that was massively helpful because sometimes we just think of sin as behavior, but sin is deeper than that. It's a failure to love God and it's a failure to love others. Not only is that how the Bible describes sin holistically, but it doubles down and it goes, man, sin is really about us redefining our bad decisions, making them sound like they're good ones. And if you have a pattern of doing that, you go like, oh man, I better check myself to see if I'm really following Jesus. This is the direct context that John is writing to. And he says, man, if, if you do that, you're probably a child of the devil. And we go, oh, like, that doesn't sound good at all. 
But if we understand theologically what John is saying as we look at the holistic version of the Bible in Reformed theology, that you know what? We're all children of the devil when we start. Again, that sounds harsh, but that's total depravity. It's this idea that like um, we inherit our sinful nature. And until Jesus invades our life by the power of his spirit and draws us to himself, we have no shot but to continue to sin. But Jesus is gracious and he moves towards us and he becomes more and more beautiful to us, revealing who he is, and we repent and we turn to him and we have new life. We get adopted into the kingdom of heaven. And some of us, again, we've talked about this language that John is using of like, we're all children of God. And we said last week, like, we're, we're all created in God's image. We have value and worth, but we're also separated from God because of what the Bible calls our sin. And now you might not be okay with that and go, well, I don't know about that. That doesn't, I mean, a baby comes out and they're so pure and like, well, you just haven't been a parent yet. That's all it is. It's fine. Right? Because you can even go, we can leave, we can all leave right now. We could go over to the toddler room right now where they're walking and barely talking and you put a toy right in the middle of all of them and what happens? Mine, right? They just start, and like, you don't have to teach selfishness. Augustine says we all have a radical curvature inward. That's because of sin that gets passed down to us. We all are selfish. We all are looking out for our own best interest. And that would be a child of the devil. It's until you come into relationship with Jesus that changes who your father is. Now, again, this sounds harsh and like, oh, my goodness, this is crazy. You're saying because I sin, I'm a child of the devil? I'm saying that's what the Bible says. <laughs> And it's really what John is drafting off of what he says in the Gospel of John, who he's the author of, as he hears Jesus in this conversation with the religious leaders. You remember this in John chapter 8, right? We covered the Gospel of John several years ago, and Jesus is having this conversation with the, the, the religious leaders of the day. And the religious leaders of the day, man, they don't like what Jesus is doing because it's messing with their control, it's messing with their power, it's messing with their life. And so they start coming after Jesus and what they start doing is they start trying to like, they're in this debate with Jesus and they try to like cut his legs out from under him because they know that he was born of a virgin. And there's this kind of conversation of like, well, Jesus is kind of, I don't know, you know, like, and they're like, well, who's your father, Jesus? Because our father's Abraham. And they're trying to get one up on him verbally. And how does Jesus respond? He goes, actually, your father's not Abraham. Because if your father was Abraham, you would do the things he does and you would believe in me, but actually you're a, a child of the devil. That's who your father is. He has been a liar from the beginning and he works in lies. That's what he tells the religious leaders who should be the ones that are upholding God's law, but because he goes below the waterline, he goes, you're pretending, you're deceiving yourself, you don't really care about the things of God, you care about your power and your control. And he goes, you're children of the devil. This is exactly what John is saying to the people that are pulling others away from the truth with their false teaching. So it's helpful for us to go like, man, are, are we being deceived? I just think that's a really honest question for us. Like, I'm a religious leader. Would Jesus talk to me that way? I think that's a fair question to assess. It's kind of a scary question. Even in Matthew 7, we said, like, man, they did all these things, but, like, 
I never knew you. Verse 7 says, let no one deceive you, right? You see the little children language in here again that John is going like, man, like I, I love the fact that he keeps using this language because he uses very harsh words and they're very true words, but I don't feel like he's yelling at his audience. I don't feel like he's shaming them to change their behavior. I think he's going, man, like do you know? Like, don't, don't live, like that, that's a lie. And some of us, we get in these Christian circles of people and they go like, it doesn't really matter how you live as long as you prayed. That's what really matters. You could do whatever you want. And we're going, no, that's not, that's not the way. Don't be deceived by that. And even in the definition of being deceived, you don't know what's happening to you. That's why we need other people around us. Let's do this as an, an illustration example. I want everybody to raise their right hand. You know what you write from your left? Yep, okay. This is a fair question, I think. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Everybody at the same time. Place your hand on your chin. Okay, there's a couple of you that did it. Place your hand on your chin. Not your cheek, your chin. I see one couple, one buddy. Is that, is that covering both at the same time? Josh, I feel like you're touching your cheek and your chin. Okay, you can put it down. What did I tell you to do? Place your hand on where? What did I touch? Cheek. So about half the room went like this. The other half listened to the words. The point is, man, we can be deceived so easily, especially from somebody that has a microphone and has a platform and something like this. Like, that's why you have to be very careful. And later in the text, in the story, John will go, like, you have to test the spirits because everything people say isn't always true. It isn't always right. That's why you need to test the Bible based on what I'm saying up front because some of us will get deceived into doing what we see versus actually what we hear to be true. And this is where he's going this. Do you know how you can get deceived in your habits, in your daily rituals, in your daily routine? There's a YouTuber right now that he's real popular. Um, his name is Ryan Treehand. Anybody know who Ryan Treehand is? Um, you should go check him out if you haven't seen him. He's on YouTube and he did this series last year. We took a penny and he traveled um, from one end of the country to another based on just having a penny. He started with a penny and he just built his profits and he did all these odd jobs and he traveled from state to state and he slept at a hammock. And uh, it's really, really entertaining. And he has millions of people that follow him. And in the midst of this series, have you seen it? And he records and he posts every day. It's a 30-day journey to the other side of the country. And in the midst of that, like as he's doing his life, I, I, I don't think he's sponsored by McDonald's, but it really feels like he is right? Because as he's traveling the country, he's trying to find cheap ways to get food. And so he continues to go to McDonald's and he's talking about McDonald's and how he eat McDonald's. And like, if you watch it, like after I watched the whole series, I didn't realize I kind of want McDonald's. And I don't even like McDonald's. But man, it was so subtle. It was forming and shaping. Watching his habits made me go, oh, that actually will work. That sounds pretty good. And some of us just haven't done a recent job of examining our habits or the way we live. And we've been influenced by what we watch, who we're around, this, this group that's, oh, no, no, it's okay, you can do this, you can do that, versus being influenced by the story of God and what he tells us to do. And so we just need to be aware of we've fallen into this practice of sinning, like John says, man, are you making it a practice to not care and do whatever you want? you might not really have a relationship with Jesus. But then he says, man, anybody that practices righteousness 
is righteous. And we talked about this word righteousness not being perfection, but being upright living with integrity, humility, virtue, dependence, honesty. And as we do that, that shapes or reinforces our identity as children of God. So again, here's how this plays out real practically. Say you're at a job and you're, you're, you're having to have a hard conversation. Somebody said something and you need to go like, actually, that's not okay. And you know if you confront your boss or your coworker, it's going to cause waves and you're going like, ah, I don't know what's going to happen. And all your coworkers, even if they're Christians, are going, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to say that. This definitely happens in peer groups younger too, in high school and junior high. Like you don't want to take a threat to say something that might make you an outcast. And so you just kind of shrink back and you're not honest, you're not virtuous, you don't really have integrity, you say nothing. And what John is going is like practice righteousness. Have that conversation. Because if you have that conversation, you're going to double down on like what you say doesn't form my identity. I get my identity from what God says is true about me as a child. And that's the direct context like we talked about last week, that God pursues us, gives us the ability to be adopted into his family, says, I love you, I love you, I love you. And based on that, that's the motivation for stepping in and living righteously. And so you step in and you have the hard conversation, even though you know it's going to make waves, even though you might be misunderstood, even though you might be slandered, all types of things because your identity is based on who you are in Jesus, not what they think of you. And see how that works on both ways? As I understand my uh, relationship with Jesus, I have the ability now to practice habits that are actually countercultural. And as I practice these habits that are countercultural and virtue and honesty and love and dependence, loving my enemies, that actually doubles down on who I believe I am as a child of God. That's what John is saying is like continue to do those things and you'll be reminded of who you are. And as you're reminded of who you are, you'll continue to do those things. And it works in both directions. If you continue to practice sin, you're going to double down on your identity not being a child of God. And then you're gonna get frustrated why God won't meet your needs and you go like, well, are you acting like his child? Or are you just coming to him when you need something? This is a sobering text for us to be reminded of. And this living in a righteous way doesn't come from our own power, right? We talked about this in Romans. It's not like you just do the right thing all the time and you check the box and you're great. No, it's about dependence. It's about surrender. What does the text say? Like anybody in verse 6 who abides in him will not sin. If you're connected continually to Jesus and the Spirit and you're going, help me, help me. I don't know what to do here. This seems scary, but I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to trust you of who I am in you and not what they say about me. And you continue to walk in him. You'll begin to practice righteousness. But it's not in our own power, right? Let's make that clear. It's about surrender continually to the Spirit moving in and through you. Look at verse 9, what John says. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Most commentators and uh, theologians think the seed is the Holy Spirit. Some people think it's the Word of God. Some people think it's the Spirit of God. Most people think it's the Spirit of God. Some people think it's both. Either one, that God's Spirit is planted in you or his Word is planted in you once you make that decision to trust him in repentance and faith. 
And here's what I love about this illustration that John uses. How does a seed grow? Because some of us read this text overly critical again in our head, and we go, I gotta clean up everything right now. I gotta be perfect. I see Jim Ellis and the way he lives, and I gotta live like that. And well, Jim, that's not gonna happen for you for a while because a seed grows slowly over time. And that's the point that John's trying to make. Is your character, your habits, your identity, is it growing over time? It's not automatic right away, it grows over time. And so when you look at yourself five years ago, if you've made a decision to surrender to walk with Jesus and live by his teachings, are you more patient than you were five years ago? Are you kinder than you were five years ago? Like, that's the point, as you continue to move, and because what does the Spirit do is he's a seed in you. There's things that five years ago I wouldn't have think were a big problem, but as God's Spirit convicts me to the truth of his story, I go, oh, that's kind of a problem, because he continues to make me more like him over time. And that's the whole point that John is trying to help us with. And if we need an understanding for what does that actually look like, I would advise you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. You don't have to do it right now, but Paul gives a whole list of the fruit. We're talking about the fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. That's what naturally gets produced in you as you follow Jesus. You become more of the human he wants you to be. So it's helpful for us to understand just like there's practices of making a practice of sinning and doing whatever we want versus making a practice of righteousness. This is the reason we try to create things in our community that will help us practice. This is why we get together on Sunday. Why are you coming here when it's 120 degrees out? It doesn't make sense to the world, but you're going like, I want to practice. And I want to understand what the Bible says. I want to practice with this group of people that were committed to following Jesus. We're going to sing songs. Why do you sing songs? That's a weird thing. We've talked about that. Where else do you kind of sing unless it's a sporting event or some type of chorus or musical? Like, you don't really walk in and sing with people. That's weird. But you go, I want to practice what's true. Like, I want to, I want to develop a habit of knowing. The more we sing, the more we believe what's true of us in, in, in Jesus. The way our identity gets shaped and formed, and when we get shaped and formed, we start to live differently when we leave these doors. That's why being a community is important with each other. That's why we meet throughout the weeks to, to get in rooms with each other and go like, how, how have you been practicing this week? Help us practice together because the world is going to have you practice in a totally different way. And so we have to combat that. That's why we're having these pathways of discipleship coming up in the fall that we've been building to go like, man, what does it look like to understand who Jesus is? What does it look like to understand what the Bible actually says? We want to give you opportunities to practice because we want you to know how you're loved as a child of God. And as you know you're loved as a child of God, you'll start to live differently. You'll start to do the things we sang about. You'll start to look for the outcasts. You'll start to look for the poor. You'll start to move into people's lives with love even people that are really hard for you. And that's the hope that John is giving in the midst of this. He's saying, man, don't be deceived. Don't pretend. There's actually a way that you can shape your identity from your practices, from your habits. And that's why we want to do the things we do, so we can understand that we're fully loved, so we can step into spaces that are hard and confusing and often frustrating, knowing our identity is secure as children. 
That's the hope. And one of the reasons we practice communion every single week when we respond is this is a version, a habit, a practice of understanding who our identity is found in. It's found in the person of Jesus. He gives us that access point to be made right with God, that he covers our sin, that we can change the way we live because what he's done for us on the cross, he was a sinless man. He was the only one that lived a perfect habit. He was the only one that practiced righteousness perfect. He's the only one that fully understood his identity in his father. A lot of you know the story of Jesus before he does any public ministry. What happens? He gets baptized and he comes out of the water and there's a voice that comes down from heaven and says what? This is my son with whom I'm pleased. And Jesus hasn't done anything yet. And he operates in that identity as he continues to move in ministry. And he operates in that identity as he goes to the cross on behalf of you and me. And that's why we take communion every single week as a practice and a habit to know who we are found in Jesus. And so we're going to do that this morning as we close. Let me pray and I'll give us some instructions for our response together. Father, thanks for your goodness and righteousness towards us. Thanks that you're an advocate, that we don't have to be perfect or sinless, but there's also another extreme to not assume we're good and we can do whatever we want. Help us figure out those tensions in our daily lives. Help us step into those places that are hard and live with virtue and integrity and honesty because we know who we are in you. And that motivates us to move. We ask that you would do it in and through us. We pray in your name, amen.